A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to the 71st episode of Curiosityness. This episode, oh boy, it's a fun one. It's with Peter Houlihan. And Peter shares the story of how L.A. became the bank robbery capital of the world, Los Angeles, which I didn't even know about. Um, It happened in the 80s, 90s. So he talks about that, shares that whole story. We go in and it's kind of story time. And Peter tells some really interesting stories and and bank robbery cases and uh, shares a lot about that. So we dive into a couple specific cases and then uh, we really talk about a bank robbery bank robbery that happened in Norco, California in 1980. And uh, I I think you're going to enjoy it. It's just a really fun, uh, informative uh, episode about an interesting subject. And so without further ado, here is Peter Houlihan with the story of how L.A. became the bank robbery capital of the world. All right. What's going on, Peter? How you doing? I'm good, Travis. Thanks for having me on. This is yeah. great. Yeah, hell yeah, man. This will be fun. I'm, dude. The story that you're you're telling is awesome. Never even I had no idea this even existed, but it's fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of been lost to time. I mean, it's 1980, you know, Riverside. So you're in you're in Los Angeles area, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Long Beach. Yeah, so you you got some familiarity with Riverside, but uh, yeah, you know, back then there was no uh, you know, no ubiquitous cell phone cameras, no 24 hour news channels to loop it around, um, no internet to post it on. So it kind of got lost to time, even though it's a it's a really a remarkable event. Yeah, interesting. And we can can we officially call say that, you know, L.A., Riverside area was the bank robbery capital of the world? Yeah, you can absolutely say that. It's kind of lost its throne lately, but uh, for decades, Los Angeles was the bank robbery capital of the world. One out of four bank robberies committed in the United States uh, happened within the jurisdiction of the L.A. field office of the FBI, and uh, which is the greater me- metropolitan Los Angeles area. And it just outpaced any other crime statistics. Los Angeles, not up there, was not up there uh, you know, per capita in, in any major, major crimes. And, um, but it was this, and that, that, uh, started, um, well before Norco, but, uh, really peaked out later on with the, uh, with the crack cocaine boom and everything else, um, epidemic. And, uh, and, uh, they lost their title in 2003, but they've, you know, every few, few years they get it back. But at its worst in 1992, there was 2,600 bank robberies in that area. And that's 14 a day. <laughs> and the that's reason crazy. is free the reasons freeways. It's because yeah. of freeways, you know, I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot of banks out there. Um, and, uh, and this car culture, but you know, you can rob a bank near a freeway on ramp, hop on a freeway. And if you time it right, you know, five minutes later, you're five miles away and you're cruising the side street of some diff- completely different police jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
And plus, uh, you know, LA, the LA retail banking industry got so competitive that they, uh, and, and convenience is everything in Southern California. It's home fast food. It's a home of drive through. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, and so they start putting them closer and closer to freeways, even though they knew uh, they just built it into the business plan. So soon you had it, you yeah. know, you just, all of them, they, they try, you know, so yeah, that, that's what, that's what caused it. And then in general, uh, bank robberies went through the roof uh, when cocaine first appeared in the uh, in the mid in the disco era, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 1975, and and uh, you know the whole celebrity culture and of Los Angeles and party culture pumped uh, pumped that up even beyond other cities. Um, you know, it was so flaunted. It was so, you know, I mean, it, 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 you know. The, <laughs> celebrities whether they be porn stars or film stars or rock musicians they were wearing coke spoons around their neck and it was became a status symbol and you know when when you get addicted to coke and you start uh you know running out of money you need to get money fast and uh, uh bank robbery in los angeles uh was was the way to do it um dude crazy yeah, I know. Well, those are mostly the guys who are addicts are mostly note passers. They're called one-on-one bandits. They come in one one bank robber, one bank teller, pass the note across. I got a gun. Give me all your money. Clean out a teller drawer for twenty five hundred, thirty five hundred dollars. You know, walk out, hop on the freeway, and get the hell out of there. And you you're probably going to get away with it, but eventually your luck's luck's going to run out. And that's of course a very different motivation. And a very different type of bank robbery than the narco bank robbery. Uh, mm-hmm. But to answer your question, yeah, bank robbery capital of the world. It was the FBI who called it, who named it the bank robbery capital of the world. The um, the, the FBI field office in Los Angeles had it on coffee mugs. Yeah, <laughs> and on their fax and on their fax cover sheets it said bank robbery capital of the world. Dude, that's hilarious. Yeah, it is funny. Man, I like what were they thinking? Were they like, was it just kind of like a little badge of honor or something? Or what were they? Do you have any idea yeah. why? Or yeah, you know, the guy who headed up the uh, bank robbery division during the real epidemic, which which kind of started right around Norco and then spread up through like 1997. You kind of bookend it with the North Hollywood shootout, which was that crazy. You know, those two guys sitting in front of that bank with body armor on and a ferocious firefight, which everybody saw because there was helicopters floating above them, filming it. But um. Uh, Bill Rader is a, is a, was the, uh, the the bank squad head of the bank's robbery squad, um, and yeah, you know they're charged with investigating bank robbers, but they're not. You know, no one was ever blaming them for this. <laughs> you know, they were they were catching bank robbers as well as you could, yeah. but uh, particularly with the technology, technology later became just a huge force in slowing down this whole epidemic. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, they weren't really getting blamed for it, and uh, you know, it's a little bit of an inside joke. They certainly weren't laughing about it on uh, radio or television, but uh, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bit of a badge of honor, but also a, a, a kind of some dark humor at a, what they were up against, which was incredible. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, how you mentioned it quickly about how it was built into sort of the, the business model of banks where it wasn't, you know, compared to what they may lose on a investment or something like that. I think I read in one of your articles, like the money they were generally losing from robberies was like nothing. Yeah, it was. Uh, 
even a big take, a big takeover robbery, you know, um, $400,000, they could lose it on a bad loan is what yeah. Raider said. You know, the FBI guy, he just said, I could lose that on a bad loan. Um, what, uh, what became a real problem for them was when, uh, the, the street gang started to get into the game yeah. and they learned that, wow, we could make a ton of money on this. And they'd send in, you know, these, these OGs, these original gangsters, the older guys would send in these, what they called them baby bandits. And these were like teens and they'd send them in there and to rob these banks and they'd sit off, uh, you know, in a hotel room, motel room, you know, a, a few miles away, send these crazy kids in there. And, and, uh, they start shooting up the place. Uh, you know, they call them indoor muggings. And that's when those guys, the banks finally got on board and said, we got to get serious about this because there were all the, they, they had entire, an entire branch of employees quit after, after some of these, cause they were just so awful. I mean, they're just yeah. these kids, kids firing, you know, guns into the ceiling, pistol whipping customers, pulling the wedding rings off of them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, no, none of that gentleman bank robbery thing anymore. And, uh, you know, they started getting lost suits from customers and things like that. And so, uh, you know, around 1992, the, uh, the, the losses from lawsuits and employee, you know, employee trying to replace employees and a disability for employees exceeded those from fraud in the bank, uh, the banking industry. So that's when they started to say, okay, the business model, it's not working, but yeah, they built it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't callous disregard necessarily, but it was absolute model yeah more and like mostly before kind of you know the the gangs and the teens and stuff kind of came in and did the stuff it was pretty non-violent most of the time right most of the time yeah okay. um and, and again 80 percent of them are these note passers these one-on-ones yeah. um you know, you get the inside jobs, which just means someone in the bank is helping someone out, usually get them through a security barrier that they wouldn't otherwise get through. Um, you had your, your very rare and then soon non-existent tunnelers or the guys who break in when the bank wasn't open, yes. somehow getting them to get the ball. Those are the kind of the mythical cat burglar types. They were not that prevalent, but there's some crazy ones that happened in Los Angeles. Uh, but, um, but really, uh, it's those takeover robberies and a takeover robbery is what it sounds like a bunch of, you know, usually more than one, always more than one, mm-hmm. two, three, four coming into the bank and it's everybody down on the floor will blow your heads off. And, uh, and then they clean out the teller line, they clean out the vault, they clean out the reserves and they get out. And if they time it right, you know, these people are taking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, um, those are the ones that scare the hell out of the FBI because they, mm-hmm. the potential for violence, the potential for injury and death are tremendous. And uh, they didn't make up a lot, but uh, but again, once those baby bandits got in there, the street gangs in LA got in there, they went from about 5% to uh, up to about th- over 30% of all the bank robberies in like a span of like two years. Um, again, Norco's 1980, so it's well before this. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but they've always been, they've always been the, the most worrisome of all the bank robberies. Yeah. And then what was, the, what is the, uh, the story of kind of how like the baby bandits and everything got involved? Cause wasn't it one guy reporting on like the amount being stolen yeah. or something? Yeah. Well, um, it, 
it was one OG, one original gangster that, uh, that was running these gangs. And he, he, so it's, it's a funny story, funny in, you know, again, a dark sense, funny yes. in an off funny sense, but, um, cause it got ugly. But, um, uh, this was a guy, uh, a guy who went by the nickname Casper and, uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, d- 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 you know, he's a member of Crips, uh, maybe at Long Beach, if I remember correctly. But he had he had gotten the idea of uh, of uh, you know he would get these kind of addicts and winos off the streets, and he would basically say, "You guys want to make a little cash? You want to make a few hundred bucks?" And he'd send them in for one on one robberies. He'd send them in. They'd go to the with a with a note to the teller, and they'd walk out with twenty five, thirty five hundred bucks. Uh, Casper would keep ninety five percent of it and give the guys a couple hundreds. He was an intimidating guy, you know, um, and, 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 but he was making a pretty decent take on that. And, uh, then came a bank robbery, um, uh, in Tarzana, California. I think it was the first interstate bank in Tarzana, California. And, um, that was actually a takeover robbery that was pulled off by uh, a very, goofy group of guys. I mean, they were, they were like the narco guys. They were, they were religious fanatics with, uh, you know, unlike the narco guys, they had more significant mental illness going on their side, but they were, you know, uh, foot soldiers of God in there to get money to do whatever the hell they thought they were going to do. But the point is it was a takeover robbery. And these guys were the old school kind of almost gentleman robbers. They'd go in there. They'd say, they'd apologize to everybody. They'd say, get down on the floor. You guys just, just, you know, be cool. We'll be out of here. And they'd even yell, thanks everyone. As they went out the door. Well, they took $450,000. And I think it was in late 1991. It it was a take of $450,000 or so. And then somebody at the stat at, I maybe get my banks wrong here, but Wells Fargo or first interstate who was, uh, who the bank was slipped to the news media, the amount of the take. And that's a no, no, because the FBI and the banking industry do not want to let people know how much money you can make robbing a bank. And Casper sitting right over the hill in the flatlands of South central LA took, heard that and said, I am in the He's in the right business, but in the wrong uh, methodology. And that's when he started to send in, uh, put together these bands of, uh, of, uh, kids. I mean, they are kids and, mm-hmm. and some of them, some of them, you know, just because of where they came from, from the, from the absolute ghettos of, of LA, of South central, they never even been in a bank until they walked into one with a semi-automatic rifle. And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was that Tarzana robbery that triggered Casper to, to start doing that. And he ran hundreds of these before he got caught and, uh, and then others jumped in to do it as well. So that epidemic started with that one robbery with those, uh, they were called the Wells, the West Hills bandits. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. And one, one employee letting out how much, uh, how much had been robbed. <laughs> Yeah, I love that you can trace it back to that story on that one point. And, you know, Casper's just sitting watching the evening news and here's how much it is. And, you know, sits up in his chair, I imagine, and says, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a kind of a that's a can can do attitude down there in South Central. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah. So this is okay. So let's try to. um, 
let's try to like coerce this into like a story narrative because people have been hearing, you know, Norco, which we're, I want to dive into that because that's, you know, that's what your book is all about. So we're going to talk about that. But um, and that was kind of so. So L.A.'s become like the bank robbery capital of the world because of the freeways and the easiness to get on and off, you know, the yeah. on ramps of a bank and, and get out of there really quick and everything. And then but the Norco 1980 event kind of isn't that kind of looked to as like the beginning of it? Yeah, it's definitely at the early stages of the, I mean, LA had been the bank robbery capital of the world since, you know, from the early sixties and, um, uh, you know, kind of post-war. However, the number of bank robberies was, you know, 500, 600 a year. It's a lot. Now they're only like 300. Uh, but uh, but then it, they, sh- they shot up to 1,000 a year by 1980. But yeah, I mean, the real ec- epidemic exploded a little bit later on. But, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, if you were someone who just wanted to get money on any level, and when you lived in Los Angeles, bank robberies were right, <laughs> were right at the top of the list of how, how you might do it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, uh, uh, you know, again, the Norco bank robbery is May 9th, 1980. Um, it's a takeover style robbery by five young men out of Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of working class guys, uh, two of them, two of the younger ones, the Delgado brothers from the, the barrio of Orange County, which, uh, believe it or not, there was and still is to this day. But, uh, you know, I mean, everybody thinks Orange County is just, you know, white bread, uh, uh, upper middle yeah. class. Yeah. Yeah. And stuff. No, but there's some tough, tough areas. Um, and, uh, uh, but, um, uh, what, uh, the motivations of these guys was, was, I mean, they varied among them, but the, the, the leader of, uh, the guy who, uh, who, um, planned the robbery, recruited everyone else was a guy named George Wayne Smith. And he was 28 years old at the time. And, uh, um, you know, you're talking May, 1980, which is more like the seventies than it is like the eighties. And, uh, George Smith and, and Chris Harvin, who's the other guy who, who, who planned it, George, they owned a house together and they, they were really the guys who planned it, put it together, uh, particularly George Smith. Um, uh, you know, they, they were, Born and raised, they were raised. I mean, they went adulthood in the seventies. So uh, George George Smith, George Wayne Smith, is from Orange County, from a, a working class neighborhood. And a couple things happen that are very unique to this era, um, or at least very prevalent in this era, that kind of propel him towards this. And uh, number one is very early on, he gets involved in the very aggressively evangelical born again, Christian movement, youth movement that sweeps through, well, originates in orange County and eventually sweeps through the country known as the Jesus movement. And these are, uh, these are ministries that are independent ministries, unaffiliated. Um, and they have theologies that center around end times Book of Revelation, particularly the rapture, the rapture coming, which then leads into this, uh, the tribulations and the second coming. And uh, the rapture is, you know, if you are not good with God right at that moment, all his believers get raised up to meet their Lord in the sky and everybody else gets left behind to ride out these horrors. If you ever read Book of Revelation, it's a uh, man, <laughs> it's good old uh old school uh, demons swooping in from the sky, locusts, buckets of blood, oceans of blood. So anyways, um, that, that looms heavily, but also 
book of Revelation prophecy also centers on all these catastrophic events that are going to happen to mankind leading up to it. Um, social decay, um, uh, lawless wars in the Middle East, um, breakdown of civil society, natural disasters, all these things that were going to lead up to the rapture. So you couldn't, for George Smith, he, was, he didn't think he could just be good with God. He had to be ready to, to ride out these catastrophes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, uh, so he, he got involved in that early on. The other thing is right out of high school, he joined the military. He was trained as an artillery man in the army placed, uh, stationed in, uh, Germany and the, the, the shadow of the iron curtain. And he was trained in tactical battlefield, nuclear weapons. You know, these are kind of like old school howitzers or rockets that launch these things on the battlefield. And that was, a very, that was the biggest threat and probably the biggest threat of the Cold War, but the, certainly the biggest threat in the 70s was this proliferation. They were like the gateway nuke that would lead to nuclear war. And George Smith was certainly not alone in thinking that nuclear Armageddon uh, w- would be not only possible, but almost inevitable. So when George looked out at the world in the 1970s uh, and he was looking for signs of the coming apocalypse for Babylonian decay, social decay. There's a lot to see of it in the 70s. You know, there was all that stuff. There were wars in the Middle East. There were there was the Iranian hostage crisis. There was, you know, a lot of decadence in the 70s. A lot of the stuff that happened in the ideologies in the 60s became, uh, you know, ugly in the 70s. So, you know, and if you're predisposed to be on the lookout for it, but George pegged the rapture and the catastrophes coming up um, with Cavalry Chapel, which he was a member, um, and Cavalry's uh, founder picked it for before 1981. So, and and the robbery was May of 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but George also had a personality uh, component that really kind of also propelled him. Um, so he thought the end was coming and he could see exactly how it was going to happen. Um, it was not an abstract concept for George, uh, you know, nuclear war. Um, the other is he had this grandiosity about him. He had this, what we now call, uh, would call a, um, uh, a narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this grandiosity about himself, this idea that he knew better than everyone else, this idea that his wants and his needs superseded everyone else. And he'd mostly channeled this for the good. I mean, this was a guy who'd do anything for you. All of his friends said, and he would, mm-hmm. um, let your money, save your soul. He was a high achieving kid in high school. He was, a captain of the tennis team. He was a championship tennis team. He was on the, in the choir. He was the editor of the school newspaper on the chess team. Um, and he funneled that towards good. Um, but also he had a lot of downturns in his personal life leading up to this bank robbery. And when you're someone who thinks you're destined for greatness and your personal life, you know, you lie, he lost his, a marriage had failed. Um, his family was no longer his children and his child was no longer living with him. Uh, he had lost his job. He was running out of money. You know, he, there was this cognitive dissonance between who George thought he was and what he was at the time. So this might've been a rough, a rough spot for you and me, but for him, it was an absolute disaster that he needed to get out of. So mm-hmm. I know this is a long answer to what you said, but it's a, his motivations are, have been kind of, they were, they were difficult for me to, uh, um, they were important for me to try to nail down. So mm-hmm. 
So bottom line, George's reason for the money was he wanted to get a bunch of money, buy a cabin and a piece of land up in the mountains of Utah, stockpile it, and bring all of his loved ones there to ride out these catastrophic events, this breakdown of social order that would then lead into the rapture. And, you know, he kind of viewed himself as a foot soldier of God. Um, was that the question you asked? <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's great. Cause that's like, that's a critical part of, you know, understanding this whole story is his, his motivation and his background and why, why he's doing this all. So that's great. Yeah. You know, the era in which it took place, the location in which it took place are all, all kind of fed into this, um, you know, and of course the psychological makeup, but it's kind of a uniquely Southern California story, uh, kind of a uniquely 1970s story in that respect. And I'm not suggesting born again, Christianity leads people to rob banks, but if you have these ministries and these theologies that, that basically put your young members, um, of your congregation with their backs against a wall, I mean, you're constantly saying, you, you, you got to be here every day. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you, you got to be here with the church. You got to be ready because this is coming. This is coming. And it's the worst thing you can ever imagine. Well, you know, some people are going to take, uh, some people are going to take a little bit different approach. Rather than actually, yeah. Showing up for church. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. So it makes sense. Yeah. So now, so he, he has this reasoning. He needs, he wants money so he can buy a cabin and, and be ready and hold up for all this. And so his, best option for getting this money is a bank robbery? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, uh, they were growing a lot of weed in their backyard. So his, his, uh, his, uh, the guy, he owns a house with a guy named Christopher Harvin and they were both landscapers at this parks department, uh, the, you know, the municipal parks department in, uh, Cypress, California. And, uh, Chris is a year older and uh, Chris is more kind of like a troublemaker, but he also is a bit of, bit of a survivalist and he has this, he, he's taken in with all these, uh, beliefs and these doomsday scenarios that were bandied about in the seventies. You know, population bombs, asteroid strikes, um, but a lot of natural disasters, particularly in California, massive earthquakes that would devastate the area. Again, not that far fetched, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait and see, right? But um, and and you know, and he particularly believed in a um, a book that had been uh, put out called the Jupiter Effect, and there was an alignment of planets that uh, in 1982 did happen, of course, and and uh, it was rare, in which they were all lined up on the same side of the sun within a 70 degree uh, you know angle area, and and it the, the writers of the book said it was going to cause uh, gravitational pulls that would act would um, set off tides, um, you know, tidal changes that would uh, set volcanoes off along the Pacific Rim and earthquakes and things like that. And that was set for 1982. So Chris Harvin, he kind of threw George's theology on top of that a little bit, but they owned a house out in Miraloma. So he kind of saw this coming, but he's also a guy who'd do anything on a dare. He's a bit of a troublemaker. And he joined, he got drafted into the army and he purposely got himself thrown out after two years. So he's kind of a roustabout and kind of started to back out of this thing. But George is a very intelligent, very persuasive and very relentless guy. So he kept Chris in. Chris uh, uh, brought in his younger brother, 27-year-old uh, Russell Harvin, who was basically just smoking weed in his parents' house and doing nothing with his life. And he's just a guy who kind of went along with anything, and uh, especially Chris. Chris is a very dominant personality. So Chris said, you know, uh, yeah, just, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, and then uh, 
George recruited the Delgado brothers, who I mentioned before, a 21-year-old Manny Delgado, who's also worked at the landscape as a landscaper with them. And his, and Manny got his 17-year-old little brother, Billy Delgado, involved. And, um, you know, they all had their reasons, you know. Russ was kind of like, Russ was diabetic. Somehow he got in his mind that he'd die before age 35. He kind of felt like he had nothing to lose. And he kind of went along. He was like, yeah, okay, you know, 50,000 bucks or whatever. That'd be great. And, um, and, uh, and then Manny had a kid and another one on the way and uh, was looking for a score. His little brother, Billy, he had rheumatoid arthritis. And he'd been told or believed somewhere along the way he'd never, he wouldn't walk past 20, age 25. So they kind of had different reasons, but George kind of this guy who got on it. The one thing they had in common is George was George. You know, these guys are not stupid, but they're not sophisticated. These other guys Mm -hmm. for them, George is the smartest guy they know by far. I mean, George is, and he is, I mean, guy can, you know, talk about anything and, uh, you know, and, and, and sound smart as hell on it. And he, and he was in a lot of cases, but particularly theology, but you know, so when George comes up and says, I got a plan that can't fail, you know, these guys are like, well, George says it's all right. This probably can't fail. And, right. you know, take over robbery. You, 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 if you time it right, you know, you can walk away with a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Sounds so. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like maybe, maybe we ought to be getting help. <laughs> it's very persuasive here, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't get any ideas, folks. Right. Okay, man, oh, man. So can you just kind of, you know, bring us into it and walk us through the, the events of the day and everything? Yeah, so here's the plan. Well, one little unusual thing is George and Chris uh, Harvin had a, a started to turn their house, this kind of ramshackle kind of well, it's just kind of your typical ranch-style stucco affair, Southern California, but uh, on a quarter acre. But they started to turn it into this fortress, uh, mostly kind of due to their beliefs about the end of the world. And, and they, they strung it with barbed wire. Um, they put carpet tacks nailed through so anybody tried to climb over. And they dug this pit that went down 10 feet from their backyard, went underneath their house so they could use it as an escape tunnel or a bunker. So they were starting to get a little bit uh, nutty, and then they started buying weapons. But here's the bank robbery plan. They have your You have your five young men there. And by the way, they, none of them have any significant criminal records, certainly no history of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the first thing is, is that Chris says, I'm not doing any bank robbery unless, unless I'm not going to any bank with a handgun. So we need to be armed to the teeth. George is, is right on that. So the first thing they do is they start, uh, stockpiling some weapons and they go out and they buy military versions of, uh, I'm sorry, civilian versions of military grade weapons. These are AR-15s, you know, they're, uh, um, semi-automatic high-powered rifles uh, you know called frequently referred to as assault rifles although that's a politically charged term these days but mm-hmm. at high capacity magazines and thousands of rounds of ammunition so um you know they, they've got 40 round magazines that they're taping together jungle style one up one down one up so you you know you pop it out you flip it over you put it right back in and you know, a semi-automatic weapon fires as fast as you can pull the trigger so these guys could you know fire 120 shots under two minutes no problem mm-hmm. um they also are all hair carrying hand, so they each have one of those uh mostly 223s which is the uh you know the round size that a uh, caliber bullet of a m16 um and uh and then 
George Smith has a 308, which is an absolute cannon. It's three times the uh, three times the size. Um, uh, you know, you're not an animal in the world. You can't drop in a single round from a half mile away with a 308. I mean, it's a Jeez. it's a beast. Yeah, I mean they're they're it's a beast, and you know these are bullets that fragment, they tumble, they're just the nastiest things around, yeah. um, and uh, so they load up on all that, and then they also take the anarchist cookbook and they make homemade fragmentation grenades uh, made out of uh, beer cans with a detonation device and a bunch of shrapnel surrounding it, and then they tape it up with masking tape and they put a bunch of them on uh, on dowels so they could launch them out of the barrel of a shotgun. So you could light it, launch it, or you could light it, throw it. And a couple dozen of those Molotov cocktails, uh, gas masks, compasses, radios. Uh, uh, you know, they loaded this uh, this vehicle for this thing with just duffel bags full of stuff. Man. Cold cars parked away with hunting rifles, and <laughs> I mean, it just it just crazy. George Smith's grandiosity. So George yeah. Smith's grandiosity had a lot to do with this plan. He tried to he tried to uh, um, he tried to account for every contingency that might came up that might come up and um in the process you make you almost build in something that's going to go wrong you know if you have so many moving parts but anyways the the basic plan was after they had armed themselves like that they also ski masks military ponchos um you know just loaded for for action there and um uh what they did is that morning they sent the delgado brothers and russ harvin over to a shopping mall the brea mall about 20 miles away in orange county and they stole a a, a van uh, at gunpoint from a guy named gary hackala tied taped him up shoved him in the back in this little cabinet that he, that he had in the back of his van and this is a panel van you know this is a um and uh so he could not report it stolen and then they uh they went took that over back over to norco um they met up with george and chris loaded up all these bombs and everything else into this van and uh then they uh went about a mile away to a strip mall and in an alleyway in the back they they put a diversion bomb this was a six beer bottles filled with leaded gasoline and a detonation device. And they put it under a gas main behind a, uh, a strip mall. And, uh, you know, that goes off, sets the gas main off. Every first responder, every cop is going to go to, you know, a mile away from this bank. Mm-hmm. They're sitting across from the bank waiting for this to happen. And as soon as that happens, they're going to hit the bank. Well, a passerby saw it, jumped out of his truck, put it out with a a fire extinguisher. I mean, it blew, but the gas main didn't blow. Oh. And so uh, George and all his guys are sitting there with poor Gary Hackle taped up in the back. They're sitting right across from the Security Pacific Bank at Fourth and Hamner at 3:30 on a Friday afternoon. You know, busy, busy California, Southern California intersection, Riverside County. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they decide they should have, you know, just called it a kidnapping and gone home. But uh, George decides he's going in anyways. And, uh, so that's, that's how this starts. And they pull up, uh, Billy Delgado's behind the wheel, the other four in their ski masks and everything enter into the bank for the takeover robbery. And this is two, two points of really bad luck. One is, uh, well, I don't know if there's bad luck, but it was a bank teller at a bank across the street that saw them go into that bank. And that's the person who called the Riverside County Sheriff. So the call went into the Riverside County Sheriff's. As they went into the bank, man. Yeah, (laughs) I know. So, uh, um, uh, 
Yeah, no, there actually was. There was, there was a there was a teller who managed to squeeze the uh, silent alarm. But the, <laughs> the Security Pacific branch, there they they'd wired their alarm incorrectly, and it went to the Corona Police Department one town over. <laughs> Corona scrambled all their cops to the Corona branch of the Security Pacific Bank. Uh, you know. <laughs> Five months oh, away. Oh, yeah, geez. so this is a funny little. I mean, funny. You know, again, right. it's a tragic event in the end, but it's a. There's things like that, but it was it was the uh, teller across the street who looked over and said, "Geez, Louise, what the hell is going on over there?" Yeah, man, what are the odds? Yeah, <laughs> crazy. So there. So that, that's, that's yeah. the setup. That, that's that's what leads into uh, to them running into that bank at three thirty in the afternoon, and you know, banks closed at four o'clock back in the. Battle days. Oh yeah, good point. I didn't even think about that. Now they're well, up until six and seven. People, yeah, yeah. Well, well, and also people are. The reason why that's relevant about it is people are. You know, back then you don't. You know, credit cards were not as prevalent, and ATMs were almost non-existent, and people walked in on Fridays with their paychecks, deposited some, and took a huge amount out in cash. So banks loaded up with cash on Fridays. Mm-hmm. George picked the right day, picked the wrong bank, um, but he. Uh, um, but by 3.30, most of that cash had gone out of that bank because everything was taking longer. None of these guys had robbed a bank. They didn't know, you know. So when you hit it at 3.30, that branch had actually ordered more cash to be delivered. They were afraid they were going to run out of cash, um, and but it had not not been delivered. And um, so when they burst in that account, that, that bank, they got all the cash, but there was only $20,000 left in that thing. The, the vault was empty. The only thing was the teller line and the teller reserve reserve boxes that had any cash in them at all. So it was a lousy take in the end. Yeah. When you consider their, you know, their, their gross income after their, their expenses, it's, you know, their net isn't very much, you know, with all that preparation. No, not a good return on ROI as they say in the business. (laughs) In the bank robbery business. Yeah, man. Oh man. Okay. And then, so what, I mean, what goes on inside? Is it, what's the story there? Well, you know, on the surface of it, 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 it's kind of pulled off like a classic takeover. They get everybody, it's busy in there. They get everybody on the floor. Um, George acts as a rover. They send, uh, Chris walks into the bank with seven, over 700 rounds of ammunition strapped to his chest and bandoliers. He marches the manager over to the vault. Uh, not being a sophisticated bank robber, he doesn't notice that there's no, that they were worried. They were like, when this manager's walking over, she's thinking, the the two of them are th- thinking, you know, this guy's going to blow his top when he gets looks in that vault and it's empty. But they distracted him, got him to the got him to the uh, reserve, and they cleaned out that. Manny Delgado vaulted the teller line, jumped up, uh, jumped up on the teller line. It put a hey, he was carrying a riot gun, a uh, kind of a it's a Winchester shotgun with a pistol grip, and he uh, he he got all the tellers to empty their stuff. Manny even took the coins, which uh, led one teller to think, oh, God, these guys don't know not know what they're doing you don't you don't, don't take, take the, the heavy coins, coins yeah <laughs> uh, uh and then russell harvin is sent to go guard the other right? the east the the uh the west entrance of the security pacific bank and it, russell's just you know he just doesn't know what he's doing he can't can't pay attention to his only job people are walking into the bank and then he's sticking the gun in their face and saying get down on the floor one woman op- opens the door to the bank russell sticks the gun in her face because he's too busy watching the bank robbery and hiding behind a plastic ficus plant that and that woman just looks at him and just goes, just lets the door goes and walks out back out to the parking lot. So 
a little bit of comedy, but also just a very tense situation. All kinds of drama unfold in that bank, but they do get out in about two and a half minutes. But that teller across the street had called the Riverside County Sheriff mm-hmm. when they went in. And, uh, you know, that, there's no 911 back then either. So they, uh, at least not there. So it took a while for them to get the tone out, the 211 tone, uh, the 211 dispatch out, pro- robbery in progress. And about the time that's they, they do that, uh, that tone goes out um, right as they're coming out of the bank. The, the four guys are saying, George yells time, everybody get out. They all pile out and they step outside the bank. And here's another really piece of bad luck. And it's kind of bad luck for everyone involved uh, in the end. And that's that when that tone drops, that 211 tone, robbery in progress, dispatch goes out. There's a deputy named Glenn Belaski um, who is at that intersection in his vehicle looking straight at that bank. So he's on Hamner Avenue, about ready to make a left turn. Um, some people say he was going to the bank. He denies this, going to the bank to cash his paycheck, his Friday paycheck. But uh, yeah, so he is right there. And if you hear the radio traffic, it's under two seconds you hear this, 211 in progress, Security Pacific Bank, 4th and Hamner. And he's he says, I'm 1097, I'm on scene. So he's... Wow. Uh, you know, it doesn't leave Glenn Belaski any time to kind of think this through. Um, you know, normally when you're, uh, you know, I'm an EMT, so I know when you're on your way to a scene, you're listening to radio traffic, you're kind of thinking of what you might be going into, mm-hmm. what you're going to do. Glenn Belaski's already there, and within five seconds, they're shooting at him. They're they're blowing his light bar out of the top of his car, and he doesn't even know that that's happening. He's like, what the hell's going on with my light bar? Uh, you know, it's all happened so fast. He hits this, he turns on his lights. He makes the left turn. George sees him. Chris sees him, and they they start firing on him. And uh, and he comes around. He comes right into the bank parking lot, which is probably if he had more time, he wouldn't have done that. He would have waited for backup. Um, you know, two eleven in progress. There's two eleven silent. Two eleven silence are almost always false alarms. They're silent alarms that were triggered in liquor stores, banks. They're almost always false alarms. Two eleven progress is confirmed. That's bank robbery in progress. And and um, you know. Belaski was a good cop, and but he probably would not have pulled right into that bank, but he came head-to-head with those guys. He came nose-to-nose with that green van sitting there, and four guys lined up, three of them firing high-powered rifles, and Manny Delgado unloading a, a riot gun two car lengths away. Man. And uh, you, again, you hear the radio traffic. He said, I'm taking fire now. Four seconds later, he's uh, I've been hit, and it turns into an 1199 officer down. And when that goes out <laughs> over frequency, every cop anywhere in that area starts to converge on that location. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and that's what happened. And it wasn't just Riverside County Sheriff's. It was California Highway Patrol self-dispatching off the freeways, uh, Riverside City cops, Ontario. I mean, everybody. I mean, and, and again, there's radio traffic. I have all the original radio traffic unedited. And, man, you hear that light up like you cannot believe when somebody says 1199, officer down. So yeah, that's stage two. And that's what develops into this ferocious firefight. Uh, that unfolds in a crowded Southern California intersection on a Friday afternoon um, involving Belaski and the two other deputies who were patrolling Norco at the time. Um, and, you know, Glenn Belaski, there's over 500 rounds fired. In fact, the detective who investigated that area swears it was probably closer to a thousand, but, you know, it's probably some, 
600, 500, fired in about four minutes. You can yeah. imagine who's doing most of the shooting, yeah. you know, because because the deputy you know, deputies uh, in those days <laughs> uh, were guarding the Wild West with the same thing they had for a hundred years: a six shooter and a Winchester shotgun. Yeah. And they're up against these guys with just you know just just unloading. But Blasky's vehicles hit forty six times. He was wounded in five times. He was hitting an artery on the uh, elbow. He's calling out over the thing. You know, I need an ambulance. I'm bleeding badly. And uh, you know, so it, this just turns into a pitched firefight in the in the middle of this uh, in this intersection. But but uh, Belaski manages to unload his shotgun, and he one pellet strikes Billy Delgado, the van driver, as he's driving away in the back of the neck and paralyzes him. Eventually kills him, kills him 15 minutes later. But you know, he just he becomes paralyzed immediately from the from the neck down, and uh, the van rolls off the side of the uh, the road into a chain link fence. And now uh, Manny Delgado is older brother sitting there watching this and they can't get Billy out of the seat. So they abandon this van and now there's, you know, they start piling out. They're still firing on uh Belaski, who who's pulled out of the bank. He did this miraculous thing. When he started to take fire, he, he ducked down his seat, he threw the car in reverse and he shot it back onto a, onto fourth street. Um, and it's ended up sliding sideways in the middle of the road. So he's sideways in the middle of the road, dives out of his car. He's already wounded, stands up as the van takes off to try to escape with 17 year old Billy Delgado. And he fires four rounds, uh, you know, four cartridges from a shotgun through the back window of the van as they're pulling away while they're sh- while the guys in the back are shooting out the back window at him. So, <laughs> and then they hit, he, he clips Billy Delgado with one, one pellet from this and, and, uh, yeah, and so they get out of there. They they start offloading all their duffel bags. They got all their high powered rifles still in their ski masks, and they they start to fan out in this uh, Southern California intersection. People are running for their lives. Yeah. I mean, the bailing out of their cars. These guys are fanning out and walking up these. You know, the cars are backed up fifty cars. You know, in each direction on a on a four lane major uh, boulevard going through this town. And, uh, uh, you know, these guys are just waving guns and sticking them in people's places, trying to find another getaway vehicle. And they, they do, they, they find a, uh, the perfect getaway vehicle. It's a Ford F two fifty pickup truck, uh, being driven by this, uh, heavy mechanic, uh, heavy, uh, heavy equipment mechanic named Mike Linville and uh, stick a gun, the ham gun at him. He jumps out. And this thing is a, uh, it's a beast. It's a Ford F two fifty. It's been modified for this, this purpose. It's got uh, tool cabinets on the sides are filled with tools, fabricated metal. It's also got these acetylene and oxygen tanks. These, you know, those heavy ones, those tall ones that are mounted right behind the, uh, the, uh, the cab. And, you know, none of the, nothing the law enforcement's firing is going to penetrate that. So that's like perfect fire. They've got raised up sides that are fortified. And, and that's, that's what they, uh, that's what they pile into. Uh, George and Russ Harvin in the back. George was his 308. He's been wounded. He'd been, he got hit by a deputy named Andy Delgado, who was firing shotgun rounds into him. He got hit in the groin and was bleeding badly. Yeah. Russ took a shotgun pellet under his scalp, but didn't penetrate his skull. Those two guys hopped in the back. They, they got all their bombs and everything else still with them. Chris Harvin jumps behind the wheel. He's got a long Colt 44 in his lap. And then Manny Delgado's got a Heckler 2. Uh, you know, Heckler 223. It's a, um, yeah, it's a, the Rolex of, uh, of semi-automatic assault rifles. And he's, uh, he, he gets in the passenger seat, but he, he, 
pulls himself completely out of the cab. He's sitting on the windowsill with his torso entirely out of the cab, firing that weapon over the over the top of the cab. So these guys have a you know an absolute tank of a of a vehicle, and they've got two two twenty threes and a three oh eight mounted on three different things. I mean, and that's what they, uh, that's what they leave that intersection with. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a military grade vehicle at that point, particularly, you know, what they're up against. And yeah. that, that fight only lasts four, four minutes. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, Pulaski's injured three of the bank rob one's dead Three, two of them. S- civilians crash their cars into each other. Two of them get hit by gunfires. One or two get grazed by gunfire. Um, a 15 year old girl, who's out there taking a driving lesson from her father gets uh gets their car clipped by Belaski when he's coming out father looks up and takes a 223 fragment just grazes the side of his head uh when once his car crashes because they crashed into another car his 15 year old daughter takes a fragment in the back um you know this is just <laughs> this is a bad bad scene at that intersection i'll tell you that and then they take off in that truck and it turns into a running gun battle through the s- suburban streets of uh of Riverside County at that point where they're just weaving through these semi-rural often suburban streets and you've got every cop in the area descending on them trying to follow the radio traffic where are they going now and they're just changing roads you know they're trying to get back to their house that that compound that they made, they think yeah. they're going to get there and, uh, uh, and they are shooting people, they're ramming cars out of intersections. And, uh, um, you know, so the complexion has really changed all along the way. Uh, you know, cause after that, it goes on to a, a crowded Southern California freeway after that, um, where they're throwing fragmentation grenades out and, uh, and they, you know, shoot down a police helicopter over there. And then it ends up, you know, 7,000 feet up on a fire road in the San Gabriel mountains, um, in an ambush. So, uh, you know, it really, you know, it really did kind of change its, its personality and complexion along the way. And, uh, uh, but there was, Constant fire. I mean, the toll from this thing is three. When it's all over, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know four mile pursuit and everything, and uh, and uh, ambush and uh, uh, goes on for over an hour, and then then of course there's a manhunt the following morning to get the uh, try to catch the escaped bank robbers. When this is all over, there's three dead. There's almost twenty wounded, including seven uh, seven. Um, uh, Law enforcement officers, one law enforcement officer dead, um, civilians injured, wounded, 32 police vehicles either disabled or destroyed by gunfire explosives, police helicopters shot down. So the scope of the thing is just absolutely staggering. Yeah. Man, oh, man, this is like this is an insane story. It is an insane story. I was like 18 years old and I lived in Whittier, uh, about 20 miles away from Norco. I was a bit of a news junkie and a kind of a surf punk kid. And, you know, uh, but I used to read the LA times every day. And I just remember opening the, the next, uh, the next morning, Saturday morning, I was absolutely astonished. And then, you know, the story went into the next day. Cause this next day there was the largest manhunt in California history up in the, in the mountains of, uh, extremely rugged mountains and canyons above Los Angeles, Los Angeles basin, San Gabriel, uh, forest, Mount Baldy. And, and, um, so it went on for two days, but, uh, I was absolutely astonished by it. And it's always stuck with me. It's just kind of how it looped back around for, uh, to this book 35 years later. Yeah. 
all to get around to it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious, like, you know, what was, why did you write this book? What was the impotence that called, caused you to, to do this? On the 35th anniversary, I actually pitched an article to the L.A. Times because I do some journalism, some book reviews for the Hearst newspapers, for some others. You know, not 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 a not a full time reporter, journalist, and stuff, but you know, some freelance stuff. And and I pitched it to him. And uh, on the 35th anniversary of the Norco bank robbery, and I thought, um, you know, my angle was I was going to look at how something like this. You know, really, again, a tragedy. I mean, I mean, people, people died. I mean, and, and people, you know, people suffered tremendously afterwards, not just for losing people, but post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, it's really a horrific event um, in the end. Um, uh, but I want to look at how that ripples, how an event like that ripples out over the years like how does it impact how do you look at it 35 years later um how does it ripple out how does it pass down through generations um what's the long-term effects do guys get over this uh you know people you know involved do they get over it um do they are they still haunted by it and uh even though that did not pan out that article um i did start to do a little more research than just what I remembered from age 17. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was clear there was a much bigger story here that involved all the things I just mentioned. Um, you know, the afterwards, these, the deputies turned on their own department, they turned on each other, accused, some of them accused each other of leaving them to die. Um, they were so outgunned. They were so not trained for this, not necessarily any, any less than anyone else in this country at the time, because these weapons were not nearly as prevalent. They're starting to see them show up on the streets uh, from, from drug gangs, things like that. But, uh, you know, we're used to these huge events, mostly these mass shootings and stuff where, uh, you know, these weapons are around all where they weren't back then. They were illegal. Everything was legal. These were, you know, legally purchased weapons, but right. uh, they're prevalent. And, uh, but they, the deputies blame their own department for not preparing them properly, for not reacting afterwards. And, and, uh, they, these guys turned on each other and, and, uh, it was just a really, uh, there's a lot of human drama in this. And, and, uh, uh, um, that is always the heart and soul of any story. I mean, if this is just a bang, bang, shoot em up thing as astonishing as it was, it probably wouldn't be, it would not have caught my interest nearly as much. Um, as you, as you can see, I, I spent a lot of time backgrounding, if that's a word, uh, you know, doing the backstories and, and the impact on a human level, um, of, you know, not just, not just, deputies who lost a fellow deputy, um, who almost lost their lives, but also, you know, these bank robbers who threw away, you know, five young men who threw away their lives in a single day, their yeah. children, parents, you know, mm -hmm. the Harvard, Harvard brothers, Delgado brothers, you know, they're parents who had never even imagined their child might get this. They wake up one morning and they got two kids and they wake up, uh, you know, and they turn on the evening news and find out they have none, you know, it's, uh, it's crazy. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of pitching that article and then just then starting to read up a little bit more and starting to talk, starting to talk to a couple of the people involved. And I thought, wow, this is a story that should be told and is also worth telling as a writer for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, you know, kind of, uh, researching the book and preparing about it. Cause I, you got to interview Russell Harvin, right? And Chris Harvin. Oh, okay. I just, uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, um, 
and wrote wrote letters back and forth with George Smith. Um, and uh, so I, I, I visited. I visited. It was, took a lot of a uh, relentless letter writing and things like that because our first reaction was, "Yeah, sure, you're going to tell a fair story." <laughs> yeah, know, this guy's been in prison for 35 years. They're like, you know, fairness isn't really high on their uh, yeah. <laughs> expectation list. But um, but anyways, uh, Russell Harbin was the first, and and uh, he, he's actually been cellmates with his brother Chris for most of the last 20 years. Um, you know, they're pretty well-behaved uh, inmates. So they, they're, they're, you know, they were up at Lancaster at the time, right up, right up in the high desert there, mm-hmm. um, Lancaster penitentiary. I went up to the visiting room and I, I, I interviewed uh, Russ there. Um, being my first prison interview, uh, <laughs> I made a little bit of a hash of it, not the interview itself. You know, Russ and I grew up 10 miles away from each other, almost in the same na- type of neighborhoods. We used to go, I mean, he's, he's, he's a, uh, you know, eight years older than me, but we went to the same concerts. We went to the same, you know, so Russ and I were able to, once we got through uh, past the un- unpleasantness of Norca, we were, you know, we had a pretty good rapport, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, but, uh, being what people around me would say, Peter's typical self. I didn't really read the instructions on what you're supposed to do when you go into the prison, <laughs> particularly what you're supposed to wear. Okay. And so, um, you know, I'm like, I'll just show up, you know, it's, it's the prison, but, uh, uh <laughs> I'm not inside. Uh, I'm visiting. Yeah. Yeah. What you're specifically not supposed to wear is anything close to what the prisoners are wearing, uh, which are denim blue pants and blue shirts. So I'm thinking, you know, I thought about this. I like, I like, I don't want to be a dork. You know, I don't want to be the, the dorky white guy inside the prison, uh, in my chinos and stuff. So I said, yeah, I'll put on some Levi's and, uh, you know, and, uh, and I had this blue shirt. <laughs> so you can say where this is going. So I pull up to the front gate and then, and the guy who's got the gate duty, the guard who's got the gate duty, uh, you know, the, just into the parking lot onto the grounds at Lancaster. It's a real sprawling facility. I mean, it's really big prison. Um, he's an old timer. Clearly this is probably a, a job you earned for, you know, going over. He just looks at me and he goes, you can't come in here wearing that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what? And he's like, you're dressed like the prison. He's like, he goes, that's what the prisoners wear. So I said, Oh, Damn. So I said, well, what, what do I do? And he goes, look, there's a Walmart. And he's been through this before with idiots like mm-hmm. me. But he goes, there's a Walmart two miles down the road. Go there. You got to buy all new clothes. So I go to the Walmart and I'm shopping for clothes in the Walmart. And I, and, and so I'm like, uh, you know, do, well, my shoes are black. Should I get a black? And I'm looking like, why am I matching up my clothes for a prison visit? Like, who am I trying to impress here? So I end up. In the end, I ended up getting chinos and a red like golf polo shirt, the brown <laughs> chinos. So, so I end up looking like the complete suburban dork that I was trying not to be. And I go back there, and, and I, so it goes in, and and I actually change in the uh, the Walmart. Uh, bathroom, which mm-hmm. mystifies them when they want to see my receipt when I'm leaving. Can I see the receipt? And they're like, where's your stuff? And I said, I'm wearing it. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, it just changed in your store. So, uh, so then I go back to the prison, let, lets me in the front gate. Uh, I do, you know, I, they, they say you can bring $20 in to use from the vending machines. I don't notice it says you can only bring in ones. So I have to walk the 20 mile, 20, you know, the quarter mile, the half mile back to my car and get rid of my $20 bill. Um, 
you know, so eventually I get there and, and, you know, you're standing up in front of this group of people who are waiting to get into the prison, to the visiting area. And, uh-huh. and while you're talking to the, the guys at the guards, they turn you around, frisk you, put you through a metal detector, everything else. Mm-hmm. And I get inside and I thought a good icebreaker with Russ Harvin when he walks out, I, I, I say to him, uh, uh, I said, uh, it's really nice to meet you. And he goes, yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> But Chris is, uh, I mean, Russ is, uh, you know, he looks like Santa Claus now. He's as big, he's got this pot belly on him and he's still got the same beard, but it's all white, all white hair, kind of a twinkle in his eyes. And, uh, but, you know, so I thought as an icebreaker, I'll tell him a story, you know, about like me getting stopped at the front gate. And I, when I get to the party, I said, so I went to Walmart and I bought all new clothes to get in here. He goes, yeah, I can tell. He reaches over and he grabs the tag off the back of my pants and pulls it off. <laughs> so I'd gone and taken all the, you know, all the tags you get on stuff. The one that I hadn't seen was that insert on the back of your pocket. Yeah. And so I've been stealing. So I go into this prison. I'm in the visitor center. I'm in all these things. I go through the guards. The only guy who has the common decency to tell me I still got the tag on my pants is the cop killer. Oh, so man. <laughs> well, that's probably too long a story, but, uh, um, yeah, I interviewed him. I interviewed Chris Harvin up in Vacaville. Chris took a, Chris, Chris took about three years to get through. In fact, I didn't get through him till to him. Uh, he, he told Russ, do not do this interview. No good can come of it. Problem is, is their crime gets brought back up into the public consciousness. He says, they'll still start to get treated like crap by prison guards. Uh, you know, they, they uh, just will. And, um, uh, uh, so that's why Chris didn't want to do it. Um, we're obviously very suspicious guys at this point, but Chris eventually did. I went up to Vacaville. Vacaville State Penitentiary up near Sacramento. Interviewed him. Remarkably candid, these guys. They, they really are. Mm-hmm. George, you know, I will say all three of them are mostly preoccupied with what they fair, felt was a extremely unfair trial. Um, uh, particularly their belief that a San Bernardino County Sheriff deputy was the one who killed the Riverside deputy in the ambush up in Lytle Creek, um, on that fire road. Uh, they firmly believe, um, that it was friendly fire and they, and so they're, they're borderline indignant that they're still in prison, even though they were convicted of 46 major felonies, including 24 counts of attempted murder yeah. on a police officer, kidnapping, <laughs> grand theft auto, explosive for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Russ Harvin's like, we should have gotten 25 to life. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Be out. Right. But I guess if you're, I guess if that's your situation, you're, you're grasping for anything, right? Yeah. It's, it's hard to put ourselves in that position. Yeah. Uh, interesting to talk to those guys though. Yeah, man, that is a, that is an experience I can imagine to go in and in, into a prison for an interview like that. Never, I would never would have even thought about wearing the clothes the same or anything. But it no, makes you got to read. You got to read. Yeah. The, you the trick read the is pamphlet, read, yeah. read stuff to give you and tell you to read. <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not in danger. I mean, I never felt like I was in danger. You know, it's a visiting room. Um, uh, you know, kind of indoor outdoor. Um, I mean, you know, there's some, very, uh, worrisome people in there, but, uh, you know, it's not really that, but it is, you know, it's a place you hopefully won't 
ever otherwise find yourself in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and those kind of experiences are, I mean, the sensory overload of what, you know, a lot of it's what exactly what you thought it would be. A lot of it's not at all what you thought it'd be. So mm-hmm. experience and talking to people like that is, is a shift. You know, yeah. People who, who have thrown their lives away, who are just, you know, Russ Harvin says, I was a happy-go-lucky kid, and uh, now I'm just an, uh, a, a bitter old man waiting for my toe tag. Man. And that happened just because Russ didn't think it through. Yeah, He said, I, he's never occurred to me that this would end in a gun battle. Hmm. He said, you know. Even though he, even though he was, you know, they had armed him like that. He just, he, you know, he just thought George knew what he was doing. And it just, there was just no way it was going to end like this. So, yeah, you know, man, crazy. So do you, was it, I mean, the fact that, um, that that cop was sitting there right at that light, um, right by the bank, was that kind of the like almost the one thing that sort of made this all turn so bad, you think? Well, you know, had these guys robbed that bank, drove a half mile to their getaway cars, their cold cars, dumped that van and Gary Hackle of the hostage in that parking lot of the little league field, hopped in their cars, gone off to Vegas and laundered their money through the casinos there. Uh, what would have been the harm, right? Um, these guys, I don't know, maybe they would have gone on and, you know, other than $20,000. Um, but as luck would have it, uh, Glenn Belaski happens to be right there. And if Glenn Belaski is, uh, is not right there, even if he is a half mile away, this probably never happens. Um, uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, in the end, you know, Billy Delgado's not dead. The other two guys aren't dead. Um, so yeah, you know, um, you know, the other thing is, you know, talking about the bank robbery capital of the world and freeways being the key, rob a, you know, what's the golden rule of uh, L.A. bank robberies? Rob a bank near a freeway, uh, a freeway on-ramp. George Smith robbed his own bank. He went for familiarity over uh, over strategy, huh. or and his bank was eight miles away from the closest freeway on ramp, seven miles one direction, nine miles the other, um, and so he he robbed the, they robbed a bank nowhere near a freeway, uh, uh, so that certainly played into it, but mm-hmm. uh, but mostly mostly exactly what you said, the just the the dumb luck of Glenn Belaski being right at that intersection when that tone dropped. Cause Norco's not, not small, not the biggest city in LA, uh, kind of a semi rural, but it's, uh, in terms of miles, it's only three deputies, in that entire town. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and one of them happened to be right there. Yeah. I just find those to think about those instances of chance that are just what, what did happen or what, you know, the, endless amount of things that could have possibly happened, you know, just by these one simple moments of chance like that. I, I just find it interesting to think about, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, you, you're, you're very good about pointing that out in, in, you know, in what you do, it's part of the curiosity right? I mean, uh, how things can turn on such a small, in just an instant or on just a coincidence or, or are they more, you know I mean? But, uh, 
um, yeah, you know, it, it is astonishing. And, and, and having interviewed uh, so many of these deputies, the, the widow of the, uh, the officer that the deputy who died, uh, family members of, uh, of, um, you know, the bank robbers who died, um, uh, you could see how much would have been spared, you know, how much would have spared. Because uh, it couldn't, it couldn't, even if they did decide to rob banks later on, it couldn't have gotten worse than this. Mm-hmm. Really, you know. Yep. Man. Okay. Well, let's jump ahead or jump to something else real quick. I just want to talk about the, uh, you mentioned it earlier. And uh, if you could just kind of share like a little maybe overview story of it about the uh the hole the tunneling hole under to get to get to the bank because i just find that <laughs> such a delightful story yeah. yeah it is now this one's actually pretty funny and charming to the end um so this is a oh man this would be 1988 i think so let's just call it the late 80s um there is a uh uh Again, Imperial Bank. If I got to get my bank straight, because there's a couple key bank robberies. Uh, yeah, I think that one out in uh, Tarzana was the first interstate. This is Imperial Bank building. It's on Sunset Boulevard, uh, a little bit into the uh, towards uh, towards Hollywood, um, uh, uh, near uh, Laurel Canyon. Um, and uh, these <laughs> these guys were uh, this 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 crew uh, were gonna did a tunnel job on it and which is um you know just what you think these guys are burrow underneath the bank wait for the right time pop through the bottom of the vault and uh and then spend a saturday night inside the vault just yeah. you know empty and rifling but these guys they made their way underneath this bank um through the uh through the, the uh, storm drain system under la and um they had actually were entering in and th- and they they pulled this job over the course of weeks. Uh, they were working on this job, and uh, they were loading up eight uh, ATVs at at a different location, um, uh, you know, a long way away from that bank, and driving these giant power tools and cement drills and everything else on a daily basis on ATVs, UTVs, um, through these storm drains, they were getting to this. They had a little side drain that they went up that took them to underneath this bank. They tapped into the electrical system of the bank itself. Um, so they were tapping into their, their power system to run these things. They would sit there and they would, um, Wait until nightfall and wait until the bank closed. Um, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they didn't realize that there were some bank employees working late. Like a bank manager could hear this. They started to, you know, they kept. There were employees and managers who was like, I'm hearing something over the weekend. They'd be like, What is that rumbling noise? They, these guys set set off the Muzak system. You know the. <laughs> You know the piped-in music system. At one point, they were because uh, <laughs> they were they were tapping into the uh, you know they were trying to splice into the uh, all the wires going into this bank and yeah. and they they set off the music system. So they called those people and you know, the bank was like, "What the hell is going on?" You know, somebody's working on a weekend and then the you know the Perry Como uh, flute <laughs> rendition starts coming on and and then they got blinking lights and then they'd hear this purring and this rumbling and they couldn't figure it out. And these guys broke through on a Saturday and, uh, 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 and they spent hours in that vault, um, emptying it out. And they, uh, uh, one thing that was kind of, in addition to, you know, getting the money out of it, they, uh, they took, um, 
know, crowbars to the the uh, safety deposit boxes in there, and they got a, a incredible amount of they got a first edition. Uh, leaves of grass, Walt Whitman. They got a couple, uh, I think, I don't know what they were, Renoirs or Picasso sketches. They got a, uh, you know, rare coins. Um, they got a number of things out of there. Um, but they, they took a long time in there and it's just, um, uh, when the FBI showed up and they look at this, they were just like, Holy moly, you gotta be kidding me. And then, uh, then it all made sense. The, the stuff for, for what the ploys had been, and they, and they went down there, of course, they crawled down there into the storm drain and, and couldn't believe what they had found. I mean, these guys were, had built like scaffolding to get up to the level that they could. And, uh, to, they needed to, 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 uh, you know, work these giant drills. They were, Cutting up the thing. I mean, they were uh, spackling over their entrance every day at the end of the day, uh-huh. piling all the tools, driving them all the way out. So, uh, and then all the dirt they tunneled through, they had to tunnel through. Actually, it was a ton of dirt. I mean, it was about, uh, you know, I think it was a, like 30 yards of, uh, of dirt they tunneled to get underneath that vault. Well, you know, it's a storm drain. They just dump it out there and the water would sweep it away. Uh, even though you don't get a ton of water in a storm drain in LA, it was enough to, uh, or that, or they just cart out all their dirt. So it was pretty sophisticated. Um, they were actually working on a couple other banks and, uh, and, uh, the FBI, I forget exactly how, but they they figured it out. Um, they got a, they figured out where these guys might be, and they went down in the storm drains. And sure enough, they found one of them in progress. And then those guys just disappeared. They've never been found. Nobody has any idea who they were. Wow. Um, yeah, and that's the last tunnel job that was ever done in a, a bank in L.A. That's it, huh? Yeah. Well, man. It's a lot well, of work. Now, yeah, <laughs> that is a lot of work, man. Oh man, that's just so crazy. Actually, it just feels like a cartoon. You know, it feels like a uh, a, a buddy comedy. Well, yeah, no, it's definitely like a caper. But um, it's a uh, there are this epidemic of bank robberies has swept through Los Angeles during the bank robbery capital of the world days, um, roughly. You know. 1980, 1997, um, there are so many stories, so many, uh, either whether they're just crazy stuff like this or whether they're this whole, you know, uh, baby bandit thing that blew up in the nineties and, or whether it's, uh, some of these guys who are just guys with no criminal records and cocaine habits hanging out in, uh, in the Melrose district or, uh, you know, brushing, elbows with celebrities who go on to suddenly start robbing banks and rob 65 of them before they're caught. Um, yeah, it is, it is a world of stories and it's funny. You can mention this to people who've lived through it, that era, and they won't even know. Um, they're like, did I know that? I guess I might've known that. You kind you of live through a period and you think, you know, you don't, uh, you don't, uh, you might not even know it was happening. You yeah. know, that, that that your own town had that, uh, had that title. So, yeah. Interesting. And then, so I guess just to kind of, you know, wrap this up into a nice story, perhaps, um, what, what was kind of the cause for LA to lose the, the title of bank robbery capital of the world? Uh, Cause San Francisco Bay area became 
LA. <laughs> they don't want to get it. Over. <laughs> uh, there, there, there's two things there. There's the uh, what caused the dramatic decrease in bank robberies. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple things that are very controversial. Uh, but San Francisco Bay Area did become the bank. They're the ones who grabbed the throne away. Um, and it's just because they got so big and so many freeways there. And, you know, mm-hmm. they became a sprawl they they won't admit that they are but uh <laughs> sorry <laughs> this guy's got I'm some beef with san francisco <laughs> jab take a jab at them every chance we can <laughs> uh, but um uh it, really there were a couple factors that led to this decline um in 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 bank robberies beginning about 1995, uh, 94, 95, well, peaked in 92, but then started dramatically taper off. Um, one is technology, you know, resolution on cameras got better. Um, they started later in the, you know, later they, uh, they began to, you know, they had cameras that would automatically text out these, send out these photos and they'd be texted to every cop, um, in the, in the region of the photo of these guys. And, uh, and usually a photo of their, their getaway vehicle with the, you know, the plates on them, uh, mm-hmm. people with cell phones, um, you know, the resolution on these cameras, you know, you put it on the news and remember, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, you've seen the real grainy crappy ones where you're like, I don't know if that was my own brother. I'm not sure I'd know who it is. And, uh, yeah. but these are, you know, clear, um, tracking people. It just got to where it was not such a sure thing. Um, also, as I mentioned, when the banks started losing a ton of money from these, uh, from you know, workers' comp and everything else, they got tough about it again. They started to put up the put up the uh, plexiglass again in the real high risk areas. Um, you know, gates, vaults were made better. The, the ATM machines, which automatically deactivate for 15 minutes, so you know you can point a gun at an employee, but they're not they can't open that ATM. Um, it just became less profitable. Your chances of getting caught went way up with all the technology, which was easily and cheaply put in the, the, um, you know, I said, that's just the basic barriers, um, that banks were reluctant to do before. Um, and, uh, and then there was also the, uh, couple things. There was the, uh, the federal sentencing guidelines, which was a very controversial thing that came in in the nineties. And this was the, when the feds came in and, uh, and said, um, if you're convicted of a federal crime, which bank robbery is, it's always a federal crime, um, that, that crime itself, um, it uh, uh, said mandatory you had to serve uh, 80% of your sentence before you could be eligible for parole. And, uh, and then we're tacking on five extra years for use of a weapon. Um, and they raised it up to, you know, these guys were, it was like a uh, um, <laughs> uh, revolving door. The, mm-hmm. the federal prison system for bank robbers. They would go in, they'd be out in three to five years. The FBI guys are seeing the same guys over and over and over. And not only that, there's like a finishing school for bank robbers because all the bank robbers are in federal penitentiary. Yeah. Uh, unless they've created a murder and then they might throw them in the local, that super, something that supersedes, a crime that supersedes the bank robbery itself. They go in there though and they come out better bank robbers because they they're swap stories and techniques yeah. and everything else. Show and, and um, so they were seeing the same guys over and over and over, particularly the real hardcore guys. And uh, and all of a sudden now these guys are getting 20-year sentences and having to serve 18 of them or whatever. I think it's like 95% of the sentence I think you had to serve. Mm-hmm. You know, that, of course, it's, it's very negative effects as well, especially when it comes to mandatory drug 
youth sentencing and things like that. But when it came to bank robberies, it got a lot of these guys off the streets, the hardcore guys off the streets. They stopped seeing them anymore. Then California had its three strikes rule. Uh, law that came in so a lot of these guys are getting locked away for multiple three felonies and you your life in prison without parole mm-hmm. um and so that was pulling a lot of them off and then the technology uh and then the crack cocaine epidemic started to taper off for any number of reasons but uh, uh you know some of it <laughs> this man is mandatory sentencing but that that's a whole different story but uh you know the drug addiction dropped dramatically mm-hmm. um you know, I think people forget or weren't alive at the time, but the 70s and the 80s were vicious times for crime rates, drug abuse. Uh, you know, it almost almost to a degree that would be unimaginable today. And uh, um, but they did start to taper off for any number of reasons uh, you know, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just just the technology alone, like to think to to even think about how to rob a bank today is like unimaginable with, you know, all the, all the security measures and, and, you know, surveillance and everything today. But like to think that in the eighties, it was the Yankee bandit who did 64 robberies and just, you know, kind of walk in there and hop, jump out and, and jump on the freeway. It was, it was very different. Yeah. He, uh, uh, you know, the Yankee, uh, so, so the FBI, uh, you know, Back in those days, they wouldn't even pay attention to you until you had hit like six or seven banks. And then they're like, you know, I mean, they were just getting hit 14 times a day. I mean, they got hit 28 times in one day uh, during that time period. But, um, you know, because most of these guys were one-on-one bandits and they weren't the potential for violence was very low. I mean, they were serious about it. They were, they'd put out, but once they started to get up to that level, they'd give them nick, nicknames. Cause, uh, uh, you know, Bill Rader ran that, that, that department knew if you could get the media on to something, if you get the media starting to report about it and, and hopefully get a photo out there eventually, then you got your chance to somebody spot it and say, I know who this, I know who this guy is, you right. know, and then you get your tip and you pick him up. Um, Yankee Bandit was a was a, he was a uh, he was named that because he wore a Yankees hat in for the first you know few a baseball cap in for first few of his uh, bank robberies. So he named him like a you know the uh, there was the brown bag bandit. You can imagine what he was wearing. There was the uh, you know the uh, the the Marx Brothers. These guys wore like a look like Harpo Marx masks or hair you know wigs on. So, so they had the he, he'd always give them these very clever uh, media ready nicknames but the yankee was a was a a guy who uh i think he was in his probably late mid to late 30s at that point he owned a very successful antique store on melrose boulevard that had very high-end clientele i mean john lennon jack nicholson uh you know they were they were all guys coming in warren Beatty coming in there and so he was kind of on that periphery of the uh, uh of uh you know brushing elbows with the celebrities and going to the parties and stuff like that and he developed a vicious uh cocaine habit and um he started robbing banks and one day he just you know his habit keep superseded his income flow and he uh decided to go in there and he was what they call an apologist he would actually like say i'm sorry i really hate to be doing that. he'd tell the teller you know i pass him a note i'm sorry to have to do this <laughs> but i have a gun and i will kill you but uh and uh flash a gun and apologize and get twenty five hundred dollars and take off and he started hitting multiple bank i mean he he hit uh in a four-hour period one day he hit six banks uh Man. 
back, 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 you know, just right, right up to closing time. And, uh, just right along the Wilshire corridor, drove right past the, uh, FBI building on his, on his way to the next. Wow. Yeah. That was, that's, but we got up to, uh, yeah. And, but you know, the thing is, is his luck ran out and he, his, and that's how the, you know, uh, bank robbery is an addiction. And, uh, um, uh, as much as the addiction that was driving him there, because you know it's many. Uh, um, that's Bill Rader again, the FBI uh, uh, head of the the robbery bureau, who says that. Who, who says you know it's a uh, you know it's, it's a real addiction. People start thinking of it as easy money. It's nonviolent. You get out, you're like, wow, now I got twenty five hundred dollars to get uh, a next score. But their luck eventually runs out, and it's usually mm-hmm. because uh, you know when a, a cop happens to be driving by, you know, or they. Somebody hits an alarm and a cop responds in 30 seconds before you're before you can get out of there. Um, somebody takes your license plate number. Um, in the case of the Yankee Bandit, a rather ambitious employee uh, decided to follow him out of the bank and track him for blocks along a uh, Holly Brown Hollywood and Vine, and until uh, finally got the attention of uh, some cops who who took him down. But uh, wow. he's 65. He surpassed the Brown Bag Bandit, who had like a. 63 or something like that. So this is a relatively short period of time too. Mm-hmm. Man, it's crazy. It's not a very sustainable uh, career, I guess. Uh, no, not, yeah. no. He, yeah. You gotta, you gotta know when to walk out and very few did, especially if you had a, a drug addiction, you know, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're totally. driven by us and then, uh, then good decision-making. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, damn, Peter, this was fun. Seriously, this story is awesome. I find it so fascinating. So, you know, thanks for for sharing all this. It was it was great. Oh, thanks, Travis. Uh, it's been really good. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, hell yeah. So, if people, if this at all, like you know, tickled your fancy and you want to get some more, check out your book, Norco Eighty, the uh, subtitle, "The True Story of the Most Spectacular Bank Robbery in American History." And where's the best place for people to grab that? It's it's all over. I mean, you never know when you walk in a brick and mortar. In some places, it's there, but it's uh, Amazon. There's an audio book. Um, all the places you normally find books uh, is where you're going to find this one. Sweet. I'll have a link to um, to Amazon for sure, so people can click on that easy and check it out. Oh. Or the one we love is, uh, uh, it's called Indie Bound. It's the one that links to your local indie book bookseller. We love Amazon. Okay. Don't get me wrong. Right. No, I get you. <laughs> but that's a very that's a very cool link too. Indie Bound is uh, is one of the things that's keeping these uh, these independent bookstores that are so important to the community around. And it, but it basically it's it's you know the same functionality, same as Amazon, but it's now a local your local independent bookstore that's fulfilling the order. So, oh, so that's link cool. It, as yeah, well as Amazon. No, yeah, I didn't no know friends that. Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. That's cool. So, so Indie Bound, you know, just it just tracks your location somehow and then shows where the the yeah. closest local copy is to you. No, it actually you actually order it like an online book, like you would from Amazon. They ship it to your house and it, it oh. arrives. God, boy, I hope I got the name of that right. It's a uh, Indie Bound. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll double check. If it's wrong, <laughs> look look for the link and we'll we'll get it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and uh, um. Uh, yeah, and all that's on my website as well, which, uh, yeah, and some good photos of Norco and stuff like that. So cool. And what's your website for people? Oh, peterhoulahan.com, H-O-U-L-A-H-A-N. So gotcha. And I will have links to all that stuff. So it's easy for folks to click on that, but that was awesome, Peter. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks. I appreciate it, Travis. 
Well, there you have it. Thanks for sticking around and listening to episode 71. Hope you enjoyed learning about all those uh, crazy, insane bank robbery stories with Peter as much as I did. Uh, so if you enjoyed this and maybe you know somebody, a friend or family member who might also enjoy it, super appreciate it if you could share it with them, because that definitely helps spread the word about the show and hopefully gets this in the ears of people who actually want to listen to it, which is important. And, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. You can find me on social media everywhere. Instagram is the biggest one. Probably I'm on there at curiosity podcast. Check out the website, curiosityness.com. And on there, you could get a free sticker. Even if you want a free curiosityness sticker, all for free, free shipping and handling, it's free. And uh, that's it. Thanks again for being here, and I'll see you in the next episode.